what is the church to do and what are the objectives that it has to pursue in order to achieve that purpose? That's the question that we're asking right now as we commemorate uh, the five-year anniversary of the church by going back and reevaluating some of the core principles that we discussed at the beginning of the plant. Again, five years is a big deal for a church plant. I mentioned this before, but it's said that up to 90% of all church plants die in the first five years. It would be a pretty grim prognosis, again, if you were sitting in the doctor's office and he told you that you had contracted a a terminal disease and that the five-year survival rate was only 10%. I imagine you'd probably celebrate the five-year mark if you made it that far. And that's what we want to do as well. We want to rejoice over the grace and mercy that God has shown us in the first five years by allowing us to make it this far. But to keep the analogy going, I'd also imagine that if you had that kind of prognosis and then you made it to the five-year mark, you'd also probably recognize that you're not quite out of the woods just yet. Say you had stage four cancer and the cancer was in remission after five years. Tests had been performed and it it was completely gone. Some kind of miracle has taken place. Well, the doctor's still going to ask you to come into the office periodically So he or she can do a checkup, right? They're probably going to perform some type of blood test or something like that. Reason being, even though you made it to the five-year mark, that's not exactly saying you're entirely healthy. With cancer, for instance, there's often a good chance of recurrence. It can come up again. So even after the five-year mark, the doctor is going to keep a close eye on you in order to make sure you stay healthy with these periodic health evaluations. Well, that's kind of what we're doing as we hit the five-year mark. On one hand, we're celebrating what God has done in the first five years. But on the other hand, we're performing a a sort of health evaluation on ourselves and and asking ourselves, what kind of things do we need to be focusing on in order to make sure we stay alive and thriving? And the way we're doing that is by going back and evaluating some of the principles about the church that we discussed back at the very beginning of the church plan. Last week, I explained that if we ask the Scripture, what is the purpose of the church? The answer we get back is worship. The church is made up of the redeemed. It's made up of those who have been been forgiven of their sin by virtue of their union with Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for their sins. Well, the reason for this redemption is worship. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, this is part of what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion says that you need to do good in order to be saved. Not Christianity. Christianity says that we are saved entirely by God's grace, and then we do good because we are saved. That's an incredibly important distinction. But what what does this mean, to do good? What is good? That's an important question for a church to answer if that's what they've been redeemed for. So how is that defined? What is the good that we've been redeemed to? I think we find the answer in Matthew 22, 37-40, where Jesus explains it like this. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. With that succinct statement, Jesus summarizes 
all the commands that God gives throughout the Bible, and he does it by breaking it into two parts. First, he says that God desires worship. He desires love. This is what it means to do good in God's eyes first and foremost. We ascribe honor and glory to God by delighting in Him. That's the first and great commandment of the law, meaning that all the other commandments spawn out of this one single command. Even the second great commandment, which Jesus mentions here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That too spawns out of this command. Jesus says that this commandment is like the first. And I've explained that the reason why this one is like the first is because the the Scripture states that man is made in the image of God. Man is made as God's image. He is designed to be the, the temporal manifestation of God on earth. And this means that if we as creatures want to demonstrate our love for God, then it starts by loving our fellow man. Jesus frames the entire law within this grid. So if you want to know why God commands something, it goes back to these two points. It goes back to love, either towards God or towards people. This also means that if you want to know what love looks like, either toward God or towards people, you look to God's commands, right? Because they define love. And if you want to know why it is so hard to do God's commands, again, we find the answer is love. You do not obey because you do not love. You do not worship. So if the purpose of the church is worship, and if worship is defined as first love for God, and then second love for people as an expression of our love for God, then our objectives as a church should be built around these two foundational principles. And and with that in mind, I think if we were to ask ourselves, again, at the five-year mark, which of these two principles do we need to work on the most? Which of these need the most improvement? I'd venture to say it's probably the second command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the principle that we're revisiting right now. The church is to love others. And the way we're doing this is by asking the question, how does our love for others express our love for God? There are various types of relationships that we experience as Christians, and all of these relationships express our love for God uniquely. The question we're asking is, how do these various relationships do that? How do they uniquely demonstrate our love for God? And the reason we're asking this question is that we can better understand the so that we can better understand the importance in excelling in our love in these various relationships. Again, we're trying to make some changes in the weekly life of Cornerstone this year. You probably, if you were paying attention to the announcements, you can see some of that already. I think you'll better understand why we're instituting these changes. And hopefully you'll want to be a part of them if you understand how the love you express in these various relationships serve as an expression of your love for God. We began last week with family. In that message I explained how love for family can serve as an expression of love for God. We saw that the scriptures say that the reason why God calls us to love our family is is because family uniquely represents the character of God. When God made man in his own image, it means that God made man to rule over the earth with the same kind of humble, deferential love that allows the Trinity to rule over all creation as three distinct yet unified persons. We also saw from the scriptures that God calls us to love our families because family functions as the primary means by which God communicates truth from one generation to the next. 
It's through family that we're able to pass on the wisdom and truth that we've learned from either from others or, or through our own experiences to the next generation so that their minds might be open to the truth, and particularly, of course, to the truth of God, so that they might live lives that are pleasing to God. Thus, last week, we came to understand that love for our families is a vital expression of our love for God. It's the most basic form of love that we can express, and and this is why it is so critical. It's so critical because it is so basic. Our love for family is rooted in the very purpose of our creation. When it's done right... Family is worship. And yet at the same time, we must note that love for family is not synonymous with love for God if it is not rooted in that love for God. While family is the most basic love that we're called to, it's not the highest form of love that there is. Jesus explains that He always must come first, even over our families. Matthew 10.37, He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke records Jesus even stating the point more emphatically. Luke uh, 14.26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, your love for him must so exceed your love for your family that your love for family can almost be qualified as hate by comparison. Of course, that doesn't mean Jesus is saying you should not love your families. Elsewhere, he affirms the fifth commandment that you should honor your father and mother. But he does say that he should come first. And this should inform us about the root of our love for family. That root is found in God. So love for family is not necessarily the same thing as love for God. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, to discover that while our love for family is one of the most basic ways, one of the most basic ways that we can express love for God in human relationship, it's not the fulfillment of that love. Just as thou shalt not murder is not the fulfillment of love, but really it's the most bare minimum expression of love. So also love for family, while a necessary expression of love for God, the most basic, is at the same time not the fulfillment of what it means to love others out of a love for the image of God. The image of God in men extends beyond the borders of our families, and this means that we should love not only our families, but all people. So if we're going to fulfill the love that God calls us to, we must go further. We must exceed the bare minimum and strive to love others in all the various spheres that God calls us to. And it's with this in mind that we turn our attention to the second objective in our discussion about love for others, love the church. Please turn to John 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15. The words that we're about to read are spoken during the Last Supper. During this meal, Jesus knows that the time of His death is near. And so He explains that He's about uh, to leave His disciples for a period of time uh, before He'll finally come again to bring them to Himself. Throughout the Supper, Jesus therefore explains to the disciples how they are to conduct themselves until the time of His return. Watch here now how Jesus explains how we as the church, as His disciples, are to love Him 
while he's away. John 14, verse 15 to 24. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. In this passage, Jesus says, This is the way you will love me while I'm gone. Obey my commandments. That is what I want you to do. If you want to give me something because you love me, here's how you do it. Obey my word. Obey my commandments. A basic principle of biblical interpretation, and really any sort of interpretation, is to pay attention to things that are often repeated when someone's speaking. Authors will often repeat things that they want you to to pay attention to. That's how they show you something's important. They'll repeat it. They may change what they say, but they'll repeat it. Even pastors, actually, well, sometimes they'll do this in preaching. They'll just keep saying things over and over again to help you pay attention to it. You may wonder why they're not moving on. You get the point, but they keep saying the same thing, and they just repeat it over and over again to get, help get the idea across that something's important. I mean, you kind of get the idea here, right? <laughs> well, four different times, Jesus repeats this idea in this short space. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is important. Jesus wants his disciples to pay attention to this point. If you want to show your love for Jesus, then listen up. Obey his commandments. John is drawing our attention to this idea. This takes on special meaning when we consider what Jesus commanded his disciples to do during the supper. Look at John 13, 33 to 35. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Flip over to John 15, verses 9 to 17. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
These things I command you so that you will love one another. Look again at verse 14. Just like, just like in, in chapter 14, Jesus connects friendship, he connects love with obedience to his commands. In fact, he makes the concept conditional. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. The implication is that if you do not obey his commands, then you are not his friend. He connects the ideas so closely that he can say that if you do not obey his commands, then you do not have a relationship with him. You get the significance of this? Jesus Jesus is saying, if you do not obey His commands, then you are not saved. He does not know you. He has not regenerated you. He has not washed you. You are not His friend. This is important. Well, what has He commanded us? Look in the context. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, if you want to be friends with me, if you want to know me, then you must love one another. This is not a general love for all people that Jesus is talking about here. He is talking specifically to the disciples with him at the hour of his death. These are those who have believed in him. They are to love one another. The idea is that the love he's asking for is a love that's directed at other disciples specifically. This is brought out in John 13, 35 as well. Jesus says, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's not a love for the world that he's talking about since the world is actually standing on the outside looking in at the disciples' love for one another in that verse. Jesus is talking about the church, and he's saying, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another, that you love the church. This is a vitally important love for us to express. It's so important that from the context of John 15, 14, I can confidently say that if you do not express any love for the church, then you are not one of Jesus' friends. You do not have a relationship with Him. You are still in your sins. Again, love for family is not synonymous with the kind of love that God calls us to have for others. God calls Christians to much more than this. He calls us to love other disciples, to love believers. In fact, He doesn't just call us to love other believers. He connects it with our love for Him. Jesus points out that if you do not love the church, then you do not love Him. If you do love Him, then you will love the church. Why would Jesus say this? How does this work? How is is love for the church and love for Jesus connected? How does love for the church express love for Jesus? This morning I'd like to explain four reasons why Jesus says that if you love Him, then you will love His disciples. These are four reasons why you love Jesus when you love the church. The first reason is this. Number one, Because when you love the church, the church grows in its ability to worship God. 
The church grows in its ability to worship God. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, last week I said Matthew 22, 34 to 40 was one of those landmark verses in my life with Christ. Well, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 is another one of those verses. It, it single-handedly transformed my understanding of what life in the church is supposed to look like. In this passage, we discover that God has designed the church such that the church grows itself. The church grows itself. And the way that it grows itself is by each saint, each member of the church, speaking the truth to other members of the church in love. Look at this. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you look here, this this passage explains that it's not the pastor's job to do the work of the ministry. Verse 12 says it's the pastor's job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry by studying the Scriptures and teaching the saints so that the saints are supplied with the biblical truth necessary to speak the truth to one another in love. Look there, again, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So you may not be a preacher, right? But that doesn't mean that you're not responsible to know the Word of God. Every member of the church is a minister of the Word that should be capable of using the Word to correct or to give counsel to other members of the body. When you come to church and you learn about the Scriptures, the purpose of that instruction isn't just to help you. It's to help equip you to be able to help others around you. In other words, even when a sermon seems completely irrelevant to you, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant to someone else who may need to hear it. Say I'm teaching on baptism, for instance, and you may think to yourself, you know, well, I'm already baptized. What do I need to hear this for? Well, the reason why you need to hear it is because you may come across another Christian, perhaps from a different local body, who is yet to be a part, uh, who is yet a part of the universal body of Christ, who has not yet been baptized. And are you, in that moment, are you ready to speak the truth to them to inform them of their need to be baptized? Will you be able to help, or, or, or will you be unable to help them in that situation? Will you be like Prisca and Achilla, who are able to pull aside the brilliant Apollos, right, and teach him the way of God more accurately? That is the job of every saint, to know the Word of God, and to use it to minister in the lives of others so that they can become mature in Christ. When you love the church, and I'm talking about love in action here, love as an expression of love for God. When you love the church by showing up to the corporate assembly where you can learn the Scripture, the preaching of the Word, and then where you can spend time with other believers getting involved in, your law, in their lives. When you, when you love the church this way, 
by becoming involved in the corporate assembly of the church and speaking the truth in love to other members of the body. When you love the church in this way, you cause the other members of the church to grow in their worship of God. Again, maybe it's by helping a brother or sister express their worship, by teaching them that they should be baptized, as in the example I just mentioned. Or maybe it's by talking to a brother or sister about their marriage, helping them to see how to honor God in some conflict that's going on in their relationship. Maybe it's by reminding a brother or sister about the power and the wisdom of God as they experience a particularly difficult trial in their life. There are any number of ways that, that you can do this, but when you're helping them think through God's commands and God's character, when you're reminding them of the beauty and glory of God, in short, whenever you're taking what you've learned about the Scripture and thoughtfully applying that truth in someone else's life, that's helping them grow in worship. This is why if you love Christ, you'll love the church. Because when you love the church, you help the church grow in its worship of God. In fact, this is why you must love the church if you love Christ. Look again at verses 15 to 16. And note the conditional statements that Paul inserts into this idea that the church builds itself up in love. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Now watch the conditional statements here. From whom the whole body... Here's the first conditional statement. Join and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now comes the second. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul attaches two conditions to the body building itself up in love. The body will build itself, number one, as is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And number two, when each part is working properly. In other words, every part of the body needs to be involved in the life of the body in order for the body to grow effectively. Every member of the church must be actively involved in the ministry. And not only this, but every part must be functioning properly. God has equipped every member of the body with unique gifts, unique experiences, unique insights that are employed uniquely for the benefit of the whole body. And if one part withholds his or her unique ministry from the body then the whole body suffers as a result. Listen, your involvement in the church matters. To a certain degree, I can even say that it is irreplaceable. Without the contribution of each of you individually to the ministry of the body, the rest of the saints within this church will be unable to grow into the full potential of their spiritual maturity. This is why you must love the church if you love Christ. It's not simply that the body grows into worship when you love the church. It's that the body fails to grow effectively into that love when you don't. Love for the church is not optional. It's not simply one choice among many about how you can express your love for God. It's a necessary part of the ministry to which Christ calls every member when He places them in the body and distributes to each a spiritual gift for the good of the body. Failure to exercise this ministry is not only disobedience to the calling that Jesus gave us when He placed us in the body, it also causes the whole body to suffer in its ability to worship God. This is why love for the church matters. This is why it isn't uh, why it isn't just an expression why it is an expression of love for God. Love for the church is connected with love for Christ because when you love the church, the church grows 
in its ability to worship God. Again, this is one reason why love for the church is connected to one's love for Christ. The second reason is this. Reason number two, because when you love the church, when you love the church, you love the image of God. You love the image of God. I've said in previous weeks that all men are created in the image of God, but but something we have to recognize is that although all men are made in the image of God, sin has corrupted this image. Though Adam and Eve were created to demonstrate the the gracious, loving character of God as they exercised dominion over the earth, in, in Genesis 3, the curse enters into the picture as a result of man's sin. And it tarnishes this image. In fact, it should be noted that when God pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve, it's these two concepts, dominion and relationship, which both appear to help make up this image of God. Dominion and relationship. It's these two things that are directly addressed. Regarding dominion, God tells Eve that that she'll have pain and difficulty in the bearing of children. This is the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, which we discussed last week. God then tells Adam that there will be pain in his labors as he works the ground. This addresses the idea of subduing the earth, which again relates directly to the concept of dominion. So dominion clearly is affected by the fall. What can be easily overlooked is the disruption of relationship that's introduced in this stage as well. In Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, it's difficult to get the full force of this curse in the English, but basically, according to the emphasis applied in the Hebrew, God tells Eve, as a result of this sin, you will want to rule over your husband. Furthermore, now that he's a sinner, he will not love you with the gentle compassion that I've called him to. Rather, in his sin, he will treat you harshly. He will lord his authority over you. This is the result of sin. Man was created to rule over the earth with the kind of rule that is expressed in the Godhead, but sin diminishes man's ability to rule in this way. Thus, starting in Genesis 3, the image of God in man, while not completely destroyed, is yet tarnished by sin. How does this help us understand the connection between love for the church and love for Christ? Well, as the church is transformed by Christ to worship, once again, it begins to express the kind of of uh, love for others that we're discussing in this series. And guess what happens as the church repents and begins to love others in the way that God has commanded us? The church begins to restore this image amongst its members. Think about it for just a second. The, The very first objective we discussed in the church's expression of love for others was love for family. And I said the reason why we need to focus on loving family is because the family expresses the image of God uniquely. It is our most basic expression of love for God as we seek to love others because it is directly related to the purposes for which God made man. This means that as the church intentionally seeks to repent of its sins in this area and assume its God-given responsibilities in this area, it begins to reassume this aspect of God in its character. By identifying and pursuing the purpose for which God made us from the inspired scriptures, we begin to gradually look more and more like Him. This means that as the church begins to pursue love for others, it begins to become distinct from the world in the way that it reflects His image. Over time, we we begin to resemble God more and more. 
Not that we are God, of course, far from it, but we should begin to resemble Him more than the rest of fallen humanity. And this makes even more sense when we consider the commission that Christ gives to the church, which we discussed just a few weeks ago. The church is called not simply to save sinners from hell, we're called to make disciples. While the purpose of the church is worship, that's our mission, to create new worshipers of God until the return of Christ. Discipleship is this process, of course, whereby believers are conformed into the image of their teacher. But again, who is the teacher? Right? Who is the pattern for our lives? Who are we to become like? It isn't me, right? I stand up here and teach from week to week. I'm not teaching you to be like me. Right? It isn't you. I'm not teaching you, know, you to be like other people here in the church. Lord willing, we, you know, we may become replicas of the pattern, but we're not the pattern. Lord willing, we're being conformed to the pattern, which is Jesus Christ. And besides being the perfect man, who is Jesus? Well, once again, according to Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. According to Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. This means that when we become more and more like Christ, we begin to reflect more and more clearly the glory of God. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is what's going on in this ongoing process of repentance from sin called sanctification. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. This is why the church can be called the body of Christ. It's the representation of Christ on the earth. And as we saw in Ephesians 4 just a minute ago, as this body grows, it grows in conformity with its head so that it begins to fit or match the form and the shape of its head. The idea, once again, is that as the church pursues sanctification, over time we should begin to reflect the glory of God more than the rest of fallen humanity. So if the basis of our affection for love for others is supposed to stem from the image of God that resides in them, then this means that we, as those who are being transformed to have a genuine affection for God, should be particularly drawn to the church. I mean, if we love God, how can we not want to be around other believers? When believers are being sanctified, as they're they're being transformed into worshipers, they're the closest thing to Christ on this earth. So if we're transformed to have a genuine affection for God, then we should necessarily grow in our affection for the church. In fact, I can say with confidence that if you do not have genuine affection for the church, then whatever your reason is for going to church every week, it isn't because you love God. It isn't because you love God. I can say this with confidence because John states the matter plainly in 1 John 4, 20-21. Please turn there. I want you to see this for yourself. John states it plainly. 1 John 4, 20-21. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Look, John says it plainly. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Note that John uses the term brother here. While the principle that John is describing in this verse could be applied to some to, to all men on some level, it doesn't he doesn't have all men in mind here. This is a term that the apostles regularly use to refer to fellow Christians. The same apostle who recorded Jesus' command to the disciples to love one another in John 13 and John 15 is here stressing the importance of this command. And John is saying, you cannot possibly say you have affection for God whom you have seen, whom you have not seen rather, when the reflection of His glory is right here before you in your Christian brothers and sisters and you have no affection for them. It's completely inconsistent. If we have been transformed to take genuine delight in God, then we will be drawn to other Christians. We will love being around them, spending time with them. We will enjoy their company more than the company of unbelievers because when we are around believers, we are around the closest thing to the person of Christ on this planet. This is how love for the church is connected to love for Christ. This is why Jesus can say, You are my friends if you obey my commands, and I command you to love one another. Because the church reflects the image of God. You demonstrate your affection for Christ through your affection for those who reflect His image. To be attracted to Christ is to be attracted to the church. And to be repelled by the church is to be repelled by Christ. This is our our second reason why love for the church is an expression of love for Christ. Because when you love the church, you love the image of God. Let's look at the third reason now. The third reason is this. Number three, because when you love the church, you love the family of God. You love the family of God. Just a moment ago, I noted that the apostles regularly, regularly used the terms brother or sister to refer to fellow Christians. This is a trend that started with Jesus himself. In Matthew 12, as Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people, he is informed that his mother and his brothers were seeking to speak to him. And this is his reply, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. With this statement, Jesus indicated that there was a kind of relationship that goes deeper than our temporal, physical family. That relationship is a a spiritual relationship, wherein we identify ourselves as children of God with the same Heavenly Father. There's this belief out there that all people are children of God that we are all children of God. The Bible doesn't support this thought. While we, are cre- while we are all created by God, that doesn't mean we are all children of God any more that all the other creatures in creation are, are qualified to be considered children of God simply by the fact that God created them. Sonship is something that we gain as we identify with God's Son, Jesus Christ, and are adopted into the family of God as His brothers and sisters. 
As it says in Romans 8, 14 to 17, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right? All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, note that it's not everyone who's a child of God in this verse. Rather, we become children of God by adoption, through our identification with God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's as we identify with the Father through the Son that we're brought into the spiritual family of God. Think about this. We, we, we all have physical fathers. And yet Christians are united to one another by virtue of the fact that we have the same spiritual father. This is a relationship that goes deeper than flesh and blood. After all, death can and will separate flesh and blood. Not only are the relationships with our physical family broken by death, but members of the same family can be delivered to two different eternal fates and separated for eternity. But those who are of the spiritual family of God will be united with one another forever, and they will act with a type of love that's supposed to be exhibited in our families forever. They will act like a family forever. This is the nature of the church. The church is made up of those who have been adopted into the same spiritual family, the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why this is important is because while there's a sense in which God demonstrates His love for all people, the fact yet remains that God has a special love for His children. While God loves all men, even His enemies, generally, He loves His children especially. Think back to those verses from John 15 that we read just a few minutes ago. Jesus says in those verses... Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Think about what Jesus is saying here. In the hours before his death, he's saying that he's about to lay down his life for his friends. It's the greatest demonstration of love that he can possibly give. There's no greater love than this. But again, the idea of friendship is conditional. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He's not talking about everyone here. The great demonstration of love is not being performed for everyone. It's being performed for his friends. And not everyone is his friend. Only those who do what he commands are his friends. Jesus is saying that he's about to demonstrate his love through his death for a special group of people that he uniquely loves for his friends, and his friends are those who do his will. So Jesus is making a distinction here, and he's saying that he has a special love for those who obey his commands, and he demonstrates that love for them, by, in particular, by dying on the cross so that they can be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God. When a person identifies with the Father through faith in the Son, they become a special object of the infinite love of God. Well... Since God so loves His children especially, guess what pleases God immensely? He is pleased when you love His children. He is pleased when you care for His children. It's no different than with our own children, right? I love my kids. I love my kids enough that I actually take joy in putting them before myself. That pleases me. 
If I have a choice between receiving something that would benefit me or having them receive something that will benefit them, I would much rather they receive the benefit. I'm delighted by their joy. That's what makes me happy. So I would rather they be blessed than myself. This is how genuine love works. It actually prefers another over itself. And I'm not special in this kind of love. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Almost any parent would say they feel the same towards their own children. Again, this is part of the design that God has placed in the family, this natural sort of selfless love. That's what His image is supposed to look like. Well, this is how God feels towards His own children as well. He takes delight in us when we love His children. It's part of how we serve Him, by serving His children. It's why during the Last Supper, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the commandment that I give is that you love one another. This is what Jesus delights in. He loves the church. He lays down His life for the church. And so the thing that we can do to please Him is to likewise love the church. He takes delight in seeing the church blessed. And so if we want to love Jesus by pleasing Him, then we'll love the church. That's what pleases Him. In fact, it's because of this love that Jesus has for His brothers that He says to the sheep in Matthew 25, He says, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He says that to the sheep and to the goats in Matthew 25. He says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Both the sheep and the goats ask, why would you say this? When did we ever do these things to you? Or not do these things to you? And he explains to them, he says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he says, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus says it clearly. When you show care for his brothers, you show care for him. When you refuse to show care for his brothers, you refuse to show care for him. Jesus' special love for the church means that He's delighted when others love the church. And it means He's angered when others ignore or despise the church. This is the third reason why love for the church is connected with love for Jesus. The two ideas are connected because the church is the family of God. And when you love the church, you love God by loving the family He loves. Let's look now at the fourth and final reason why love for the church is connected to love for Christ. Reason number four. Because as you love the church... You expand the kingdom of God. As you love the church, you expand the kingdom of God. We said last week that part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to exercise dominion over the creation. But man was not made simply to exercise dominion. We were made to exercise dominion in a way that's consistent with the character of God. As we saw last week, this is a dominion that expresses the same kind of humble, deferential love that's found within the Godhead. It is to be a dominion that's filled with love and compassion and grace. It's to be a representative rule. A rule that is exercised on behalf of the God who made us. Of course, ever since mankind has fallen into sin, man has rejected this rule. But what we see throughout the Scriptures is that God intends to restore His rule on the earth through mankind. 
This is what God is doing through the gospel. He's restoring a portion of mankind through their repentance and through the forgiveness of their sins so that they can once again function according to this original design. God intends to reestablish His rule on the earth through man. As we saw toward the end of our study of Matthew, this rule is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? He is the perfect man who always accomplishes all the will of God. And there is a day coming when he will conquer the earth to judge the wicked and then establish his reign on the earth. All of human history is moving towards this point. When Jesus reestablishes the reign of God over all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, of course, this, isn't hap- this hasn't happened yet. God is largely rejected by the people of the earth. And the Bible tells us that this rejection of God's rule will only escalate in the days before Christ's return. And so why hasn't Christ's return happened yet? Why hasn't God fully established His rule yet? Peter explains in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is demonstrating His mercy by giving his enemies an opportunity to repent before he finally returns in judgment over the earth. This is why the church is still on the earth. We are saved to worship God, but we are left here to expand the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, what role does love for the church play in that process? Well, the members of the church are part of this coming kingdom. Meaning, if you've been placed in Christ, if you have not only sought Him for the forgiveness of sins, but submitted to Him as your Lord, as your King, then you are a kingdom citizen now, presently. The earth is not your home. You are, according to Peter, an alien, a sojourner, an exile, an outsider in this world. Like Christ explained before Pilate, your kingdom is not of this world or age, it is coming at the return of Christ. Your home is with your king under his reign. Your home is in the coming kingdom. But you're left here in the enemy camp essentially as a herald who proclaims the coming king until the day of his arrival. In other words, you don't really belong here with everyone else on this planet. Not anymore. Not with the unbelieving part of this world. You've been transferred into Christ's kingdom, which is your final destiny, but in order to perform your mission, you've been left to live in enemy territory either until Christ returns or calls you home. What this means is that while you're here as Christ's representative, you're supposed to conduct yourself as a foreigner. You're supposed to conduct yourself according to the laws and customs of your home, according to the laws and customs of your rightful king. As you do this, you not only proclaim the need for repentance because of the coming wrath of the king, but you also actually proclaim what the future kingdom will look like under your king. You live under the rules of the king in a land that's hostile to the king, and as you do this, you proclaim to the world what life will look like when he returns. That's actually an aspect of our evangelistic effort, and that requires love for the church. The love that the church displays towards one another should display what the world is going to look like once the king returns. As as we live in this way towards one another, we show what the, the world, what they're repenting to, we show the world the character of the king. 
This is why Jesus said during the Last Supper in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. People will know we are Christ's disciples when we love one another, because when we display love for one another, when the church displays selfless love for one another, we display the character of Christ, right? Who himself laid down his life for his friends. We show the character of the King. Again, this is evangelistic. This, this calls people into the kingdom of God because it demonstrates the beauty, the beauty of what's coming under the reign of Christ in contrast to all the ugliness and darkness that's found under the current reign of Satan over the earth. This is why Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When the church uniquely operates under the kind of love that will take place in God's kingdom, it sticks out in contrast with the rest of the world. It is light in the darkness. and It's an amazingly beautiful thing. When we love not only our family and our friends, but all men, even strangers as well, which is part of what happens in the church. We love people that we don't entirely know. When we do that simply because they are children of God, made in the image of God, that sticks out. That's unique. The world doesn't do this. Don't get me wrong, unbelievers can love family and they will love their friends, but they don't love all men. At the end of the day, they only love to receive The church loves in order to give. And they give to all in the name of God. When this kind of love is displayed in the church, it's an astounding testimony to the character of the king. Fallen though they may be, that kind of love is appealing even to sinners. I think we we lose part of this today because in our love, there's such such a desperation to see men saved, that we rush people into the church at the smallest signs of faith. And in the process, we rush to call men brothers who have not yet actually joined this kingdom. So because they're not really kingdom citizens, they don't conduct themselves according to kingdom love inside the church. And as a result, the distinction between the church and the world is blurred. Very often you can hardly see the difference. But in the early church, when belief came at a sacrifice and a pure church clearly loved each other according to these principles, when, that was, when the church was functioning in that way, it was the love of, church, of the church that served as such a powerful evangelistic tool to the rest of the world. It was the love that they had for one another that would confound the wisdom of the proud and unbelieving as the Christian faith spread through the Roman Empire like wildfire. The ancient church father Tertullian tells us that the unbelieving world would remark concerning the church, see how they love one another. Their love was obvious and it was astounding. This is the kind of love that should be displayed in the church as we love one another in this way. When we love one another this way, we actually love God by calling unbelievers out of the world to worship God with us through this example. So love for the church is an expression of love for God because when you love the church... You expand the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is built through our love for one another. As we consider the reasons that we've discussed here this morning, uh, why you should love the church, there are a number of implications that arise regarding 
how we can pursue love for the church. Unfortunately, though, we're, we're running out of time. So I'm going to have to leave the discussion for those implications for another time, and we're going to let the, the reasons stand on their own to simply encourage you to exercise your love for the church. What should be evident today is that if we as a church want to fulfill our purpose in worshiping God, then we must strive to grow in our affection for one another. If we love God, then we must love the church. It's not optional. It's a necessary expression of our salvation in Christ. Next week, we'll continue with the third and final objective in the church pursuit of love for others, and that's love for the world. If Cornerstone is going to successfully fulfill its purpose in worshiping God, then we strive to love not only our family and not only the church, but also the world. I'd encourage you to come back and explore this objective with us next week. Let's pray.